Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. If I were able to travel back in time, one thing I would absolutely love to witness would be a Tudor progress. A progress was a journey made by the king or queen around their kingdom, stopping at various locations to show themselves off, to be seen by the people, to engage with the provinces. And what a spectacle they would have been to behold. I want to stand at the roadside, or perhaps in the village square, as the carriages and carts and the horses and courtiers and councillors and servants, and then the monarch him or herself slowly wound past. The colour, the noise, the sheer number of people and horses, the stories I would no doubt hear of who was in the cavalcade, and the preparations which would have taken place in my village would have been a complete rupture to the fabric of my daily life, a once-in-a-lifetime event even. I can only imagine how a small child might have stood in awe, or perhaps an older person might have recounted the story of the time when, if they'd witnessed a previous progress. And if the monarch's progress happened to be staying in my local area, well, the effect on food and drink, law and order, even the way the buildings of my village looked, would have been remarkable. So I'm very excited to welcome today's guest to learn all about the progresses of Queen Elizabeth I. Dr. Mary Hill Cole is Professor of History at Mary Baldwin College in Virginia in the USA and Director of the Virginia Programme at Oxford University. She's published widely on Elizabethan progresses, pageants and entertainments, including her book, The Portable Queen, Elizabeth I and the Politics of Ceremony, published by the University of Massachusetts Press. So without further ado, let's prepare to be dazzled by this fascinating aspect of the Tudor monarchy. Professor Cole, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Your work on Elizabeth I has shaped many of us in terms of our thinking about this period. So I am utterly thrilled to have a chance to talk to you about it today. Can we start by thinking about spectacle? Let's try to bring the past to life if we can. If we were living in late Tudor England, what would we see? What would we hear if we were to witness one of Elizabeth I's progresses, and I mean both in terms of the journey and once she was resident somewhere. Oh, well, and thank you for having me, Dr. Lipscomb. This is a wonderful opportunity to chat with you as well. And I think when you pose the question that way, what people would see and hear 
and be caught up in is a spectacle of a retinue of over 300 carts, horse-drawn for the most part. They would, if they were out in the countryside, see the dust coming up from the road. They would hear the sounds of horses and people conversing. They would maybe be lucky enough to see it pass. In the towns, in London, in Norwich, in Bristol, they would be in the center of their own community that the queen comes into with her retinue. And so the towns especially would be ringing bells to alert people that she's coming. The residents would be lining the streets, also in the first or second floor of the buildings, looking down. There would be trumpets from the queen's retinue. It would be a feast, the colorful gowns of the queen in particular they would see. So it would be quite a spectacle. And who would be part of the queen's progress? Was there a specific list of people who traveled with her? Did people join her retinue as she went along? Yes. There was a specific list in the sense that her royal household is going to pay for the lodging of the people in her retinue going. So the household kept a book that would have your office in it. I think not your name, but your office. And you would be allowed to have lodging and meals. So if you were in those books then you got to have your lodging and food taken care of. In general, most of the Privy Council would go with her, her ladies-in-waiting. The ability to travel would require the government services of the clerks to keep up the diplomatic correspondence. So that's just at the top. And then you'd have the laundresses, the carters, the cooks, all of the people behind the scenes who make that travel possible. So from really cleanest, most elite down to the nitty gritty, the people who get their hands dirty making it happen. And that's why you could have on a full-blown summer progress, 300 people. Some would occasionally join en route. Some of them, especially Walsingham and Burley, were always looking for opportunities to leave the court on progress, to get to their own houses and things like that. But in general, the Queen swept up the government and off they went. And was there a pecking order, both in terms of how people travelled? I can only think of examples of pictures of funeral processions, which has everyone kind of clearly delineated, but also in terms of quality of accommodation, for example. Oh, absolutely. Before progress happened, the Queen's household, the harbingers and the gentlemen ushers went out ahead to prepare the lodgings in cooperation with the hosts, and they would scout out the rooms and make sure that the people most elevated in status had the best rooms. Sometimes there was not enough lodging. And so if the house were close to a town, some of the senior people would have lodgings there. There were also tents that they would put up more for the worker folk to be in. So yes, as in everything in Tudor England, status mattered and was recognized in every way. And that meant that the people closest to the queen in their office or maybe in their relationships would expect to have lodging close to the queen also. Some of the hosts would leave 
vacate their own bedrooms because that was the best room in the house and give it to the queen. Let's talk about the logistics because that's the first thing that comes to mind really is that the logistics of arranging one of these progresses must have been, I mean, it's bewildering to even consider. It's a to-do list of epic proportions. Can you describe to us as best you can some sense of the logistics involved and who is doing it, who's in charge? Yes, that was one of the reasons I got so interested in progress is how did it actually happen? It's one thing to say, okay, let's go, but who makes that decision and then where do you go? And yes, you have to have all of your clothing. You have to eat, sleep, and have a good time. So the harbingers and the gentlemen ushers in the household would go out ahead of time and plan the route using the maps. Hosts are offering their lodging to the queen just in general, but the coordination of court and destination was tricky and it constantly changed at the last minute. And so all your plans could just evaporate. But that being said, it was typically a group of about five men would go out on horseback and confer with the host, look at the lodging, look at the rooms. But if they were staying in a royal palace or a house, then they wouldn't have a host there necessarily. They might have someone who was a lodger on the queen's behalf, but they would do things like change the locks. You know, they were concerned about access, about security. So what they're gonna do is start to provision the food, They're going to look for where the wardrobes will go to contain her clothing. I mean, she had a couple of carts alone for her clothing. They would map out the places where the horses would be put to graze, where are the temporary kitchens going to go up. And Elizabeth wasn't always maintaining these royal manors in the way that her father did when he built them. So there were always repairs to make, broken windows, things like that. So once they have established that physicality of it, then they start to think about the food. And the way that English monarchs, certainly in the 16th century, fed themselves with was through a process called purveyance. And that was a process by which their purveyors, these household officials, would go into the local market and say, the queen's coming, we need X amount of geese and flour. And, you know, I mean, provisioning a kitchen as best they needed to with the fresh things. They would be bringing the flour, the sugar, permanent spices, but they needed to provide chickens, lambs. The senior officer, the clerk of the market, would go into the town and say, we need all these things and we want you to provide them. And so the people in the market selling their wares would not really love to do this because the system meant they didn't get the quick, easy, sufficient payment from the court. So the clerk in the market would say, here's what we're going to pay you for that chicken. We don't care what you're charging, but this is what we're paying you. We're going to take this many score chickens. Here's the receipt for them and come to court and we'll pay you. So they don't get the full price and they're provisioning for several hundred people, which means the court is going to go into a region and 
If it stays too long, it will denude <laughs> the local people of all the goods and things that they need. And this worked also with alehouses. There would be temporary licensing in the community for alehouses so that the Queen's Court would have enough to eat. So when the court got there, the provisions from the market would be either with her host or with her own manor. When I was younger, I remember seeing our town transformed as a member of the royal family came to visit. So there's a newly rebuilt train station. Houses are painted. The window boxes appear full of flowers. The roads are resurfaced. Yes. sort of miraculous. They used to say of the Queen Elizabeth II that everywhere she went, it smelled of new paint. <laughs> we can see from what you've just said why many people might not feel wholly enthusiastic about the Queen coming to visit. Did notice of a visit from Elizabeth generate the same frenzy of activity in the 16th century? Absolutely. And in very specific, similar ways to what you just described. So the town council would typically ask or require the residents to whitewash their houses. They would repaint or regilt any coats of arms. They would sweep the streets. They would sometimes commission new robes for the town councillors for the aldermen. They would be making the preparations of hospitality, gifts and things like that, but they would make sure that the animals, especially the pigs, were removed. And there was one little nugget that I love finding. The town of Litchfield, when Elizabeth was coming, paid a man to keep Mad Richard. That was the only name, to keep Mad Richard while the Queen was visiting. So he must have been a local character who they didn't want to spoil, let's say, the welcome of the Queen. So yes, from the roads, from the whitewashing, from repairing anything that would be on the main route into the center of town, and any sprucing up of the main church or cathedral, if there were one, absolutely. Was there a normal mileage between different stops? Or did it very much depend on finding the best place to stay at the royal residence or the wealthy family? I think it was a combination because, you know, the road system existed and they would follow that. And if there were a small house that nicely divided the journey between the two major destinations, then that would be a reason that she would stay there and just maybe even have a meal, break up the day that way. Typically, they could do maybe between 10 and 15 miles a day, 20 maybe tops. So yeah, I was thinking about that. You get up in the morning, you have your breakfast, you have the pleasantries of leaving your host, and then she gets in the carriage and off they all go. But she's going to get thirsty. She's going to want to stretch her legs. And the point of the progresses was to see people and display her royal persona. So any little opportunity to do that would advance her agenda, but also as a human being, let her enjoy the process of seeing the beautiful English countryside. Yeah, I know she was so keen on progresses, but it seems rather remarkable when you put it like that, because you think, actually, this is like a road trip, but a road trip for days and days and days, and you don't have a car and you don't have air conditioning, and you're not quite sure of the quality of the motels. It seems like it was actually quite a hardship. Well, it was, and that's a large part why most of her court did not want to go on progresses, but because she was the queen, she did. So they went, off they went, yes. I know, I mean, it's like planning a three-month trip and every say three nights, 
at one place, you're going to head on to the next. And that must have been why she enjoyed settling in with some of her favorite people, Cecil and Robert Dudley, for longer periods of time. So staying a week, while that would be a burden for the host in some ways, you know, gives her a break from that motion. And at the same time, I think what got me to want to study progresses as a collective is that she is every other year, I guess is a easy way to put it, of her 44-year reign, she's making a progress. And even when she's not on a linear journey like that, she's still in those other years moving among the Thameside houses. And so she's still moving, even if it's not an extended progress. And for good reasons. I mean, you have to clean out the sewage system and things like that. And You can't stay in one place all the time because the food will not sustain the court and you have other goals and things. But given how much she liked to travel and insisted on it, I think it's curious that she did not go far, relatively speaking, compared to her father, certainly. So she stays a lot within the home counties. She almost reaches the Welsh border. She's down in Gloucester and the very southern point of, you know, Lincolnshire. But she's really within the safety or security or the population centers of England. But she doesn't go to Wales. She doesn't go to Scotland. She doesn't leave the country. So that's a distinguishing characteristic, I think, of her compared to certainly Henry VIII and English kings in particular. Yes, it's really interesting to remind ourselves of the peripatetic nature of monarchy and the fact that they were constantly on the move. It's such a contrast with the rest of the people in the country who stay in their own area most of the time, whereas the monarchs are constantly moving. Mm-hmm. And when she's moving too and running the government, that's made possible by the postal system. I mean, the messengers that, you know, so wherever she moves, the post has to move with her and that center and the spokes radiate from wherever her court is. Yes, I love that description of the special postal service in your work. I hadn't realized that before. And that's such an interesting aspect of how she could continue to manage government. Yeah. The more you look at progresses, they seem to embody every element of Tudor life and government and family and gender relations because it's the centrality of daily experience with power overlaid. So when I had to think about this, it didn't occur to me either. Oh, but, and then you find, well, people have written books and things on this very, very issue here. So it's a rich topic that now a lot of excellent historians are working on, and we have the new John Nichols project editing the progresses of Elizabeth. So it's a burgeoning field of study that has a lot left to yield. I'm Tristan Hughes, host of The Ancients from History Hit, where twice a week, every week, we delve into our ancient past. I'm joined by leading experts, academics and authors who share incredible stories from our distant history and shine a light on some of antiquity's great questions. Was the Oracle of Delphi really able to see into the future? What can be discovered from lost civilizations? And was King Arthur actually real? You can expect all of this and more from the ancients on History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. anything about the cost of a progress and how they were funded? I mean, the costs must have increased because inflation was worsening over the course of her reign. So how did she pay for it? Okay. And that's a great way to put it too. How did she pay for it? That was one of the things that struck me the most. She is going to assume much of the financial burden for the progresses. So while her hosts do incur expenses, the majority of the expense is Elizabeth's. And given the stereotype of her, which is true, of being tight with money, why did she want to spend her own money to do these trips? And she did not travel amongst her nobility to bankrupt them. She did not save money by traveling. And we know this because As you point out, the inflation was causing her household expenses to rise. It was typically about 40,000 pounds a year, and she was spending more than that. And so William Cecil was constantly trying to rein her in and clarify who was paying for what and save money and budget. So he, with one of her progresses in the 1570s, which was when a lot of the big elaborate ones occurred, he came up in his inimical way of dotting his I's and crossing his T's and saying that, Your Majesty, you would save 2,000 pounds a year if you did not go on progress. 2,000 pounds. That's a significant amount. And she basically said, thank you very much and kept on going. So I think one of the big takeaways of the whole progress scene is an unusual commitment of this tight-fisted queen in spending her own resources to visit her subjects. While she does stay in her own places and she does stay in some hunting lodges, more than, I believe, Henry VIII and definitely more than James, she is staying with her subjects. So what then is the benefit to her? What's the purpose of progresses from her point of view? 
Right. Well, I think once you leave aside the kind of obvious, well, you have to move because the house needs cleaning and you have to move because plague has come out in your area. It seems to me that she is moving, one, to learn about the kingdom, one, to see some of the key players. She's going to stay with members of parliament and justice of the peace. Those connections, that access to personal monarchy of her hosts and the citizens she's meeting, but for her own purposes to enforce elements of her royal prerogative, her government. She's checking things out. She's seeing, well, are they in religious conformity at the University of Cambridge and Oxford? What's going on in Ipswich with the clergy refusing to wear the right vestments? I was finding a lot of effort on her part to implement or check on royal policies. As well, she's going to go to Bristol and Portsmouth and Southampton, places where the host put on mock battles for her. There's an element, since she doesn't go to war, since she doesn't, Tilbury aside, lead an army or anything like that, how does she as a woman put on the mantle of military leadership and the defense of the realm that is so crucial to any English monarch? And I think that's one of the ways that she does it, because with these entertainments, at the towns. She is a participant. She's usually sitting on some throne surveying the landscape, but all the attention turns to her as well. So she is the commander-in-chief anachronistically while she's watching these events. So I think that's a key element besides religion, besides testing the waters, just seeing what people's views are out there. But she likes to have fun in the sense of big proponent of music and plays and pageantry. And so you have the opportunity to do that as well through the progresses. I mean, that display of royal wealth and authority, as you said with Elizabeth II, I mean, it goes a long way toward building her popularity and the cohesion in the kingdom and the willingness, she hopes, of her populace to continue to recognize her as their queen when There are other claimants to the throne, and some of her subjects are divided religiously from the Anglican Church. So she's crafting her popularity, but I think there's some agency also in a different way about her being a queen and not a king. And that is, I always think about Henry II, who, you know, famously woke up every morning and decided, okay, right, we're off. The court's moving today, and people would be shocked and, okay, well, we have to go because he's the king. There's a little bit of that or a lot of that, I think, with Elizabeth. We have to go because this single woman said we have to go, and she's the queen. And that's conflating, tying together all of those themes of royal authority and gender roles and single status. She's not married. She doesn't have an heir of her body. How does she manipulate maybe her court, her council, the men around her, many of whom are quite loyal to her, but nonetheless, she walks into a room and she's the only woman you know, at the table, so to speak. So I think the agency that Progresses gave her was also a key reason she liked going on And is there any correlation between progresses and political events? Are her roots determined by political exigency? I think so in key eras. So 
If you look at them chronologically throughout the four decades of her reign, the early years, she's not going very far away from London. She's staying in the Thames Valley, pretty much, south central England. And as her religious settlement and early parliament concludes, she's venturing a little further afield, going to the two universities in the mid-1560s. But there was this amazing possible meeting that she was planning with Mary, Queen of Scots in 1562, when Mary was in Scotland and reigning, and that didn't happen. And once Mary leaves Scotland and is in England as Elizabeth's prisoner, then Elizabeth's movements were affected by where Mary was because while Mary wanted to meet Elizabeth, Elizabeth did not want to meet Mary. And Elizabeth stayed in the South or away from the Midlands where Mary Stuart was typically held. So once the presence of Mary Stuart sparks a number of plots against Elizabeth over the years, then that tension and concern for her safety, Elizabeth's safety, in the 1580s especially, leads Elizabeth to restrict her movements to the Thames Valley. I meant to mention when Mary comes, very soon after that, there's the 1569 revolt, the Northern Earls, and Elizabeth goes to Windsor then. So what a great fortification, a place of safety. She's not going to be leading the troops, but she's at Windsor. So that kind of happens in the 1580s as well. And I think that's in large part due to the fears of a Catholic invasion. And certainly once Mary's executed, the threat does not go away. And then when you think about Elizabeth's health and aging, you know, the 1590s were a tough decade for her, very, very, very tough. And yet, once the kind of crisis of Mary's execution fades a bit, in 1591 and 92, Elizabeth has her last big blowout of progresses in the South. And, you know, I always think of that as maybe her sort of COVID reaction. She's been restricted so much. And now, ah, okay, I can do it. And I'm not that old and I can stand the carriage and everything. But then the late 1590s and the last, say, five years of her life, she's not going far afield from London, but she is insisting on moving around. So I think as far as kind of national events, issues of safety. Mary Stewart had a big effect on her. I keep thinking about the difficulties of travel. I mean, when we had the coronation recently, we talked a lot about the gold state coach and how uncomfortable it is to ride in. And that's why they only rode in it on the way back, the king and queen, rather than on the way there when they rode in something modern with hydraulic suspension and all the rest of it. And I keep thinking, you know, this woman is doing this. As she gets older, into her sixth decade, and these carts have no suspension at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and not paved roads. <laughs> and not paved roads. I mean, my yeah. goodness, it, she must have been jolted and bumped and bruised terribly along the way. Yeah. And so she did get out occasionally and ride on horseback, and that must have just felt so much nicer, but she couldn't do that all day either. Other parallels to draw between Elizabeth's progresses and those we see on the continent, I mean, France, for example. And is there anything we can learn from doing that sort of comparison? I think, like in many things culturally in the 16th century, the French were setting the standard. 
of wealth and lavishness. And certainly Charles V's travels in Central Europe and in the Iberian Peninsula. So compared to that, I mean, Elizabeth is a piker, I think. I think the goals, the desire to show the royal face is very much the same. I think on the human level of what castle do you want to be staying in, where the nicest places in France to be, that is very similar to Elizabeth's journeys. I think the kind of model of a progress translates among these countries, but, you know, I just keep thinking about the field of the cloth of gold. There's nothing Elizabethan that I guess Robert Dudley's entertainment at Kenilworth would come the closest, but that's not the same. And she doesn't meet her fellow royals. So the French and the Italians and the imperial rulers met each other. Henry VIII certainly is meeting them. She's not. Yes, that's true. So she must have had quite a sense of isolation. From what you're saying, I'm really getting this idea of going to see and to be seen But there's a sense that she's always having to live on her wits a little bit because she's always got to display that she's still capable, she's still queen. And there's something very isolating about that. And surely a meeting with another monarch might have been something that helped feel like there's somebody else in the world that has this burden. But she's entirely alone. Yes. And I think that's the sorrow of not ever meeting Mary Stuart, given that they were two queens on that island. If that meeting at York had happened in 1562, that just would have been amazing for the reasons you're saying, because Elizabeth felt such a kinship, such a bond with Mary. And because she was such a theatrical, quick-witted person, you know, I can imagine Elizabeth just, I don't know, flourishing with some of these international royal summits, hosting people. But it was isolating, I think, emotionally in some ways. But... I'm thinking in terms also of the risks that she would have faced going to the continent with different religious, I mean, could she have really gone to France once the wars of religion broke out? The ambassadorial system was operating, but goodness, she could have been held for ransom. The dangers of her going to a Catholic realm would have been significant. Surely that's also true even just for a progress in England. I mean, her reign is never free from danger, particularly from Catholics. So going on progress must surely have been risky at some point. Yes, it was. And especially in the 1580s, there were plots to assassinate her on progress. And people engaged in trying to access her on progress because they knew she was more vulnerable then. And so there were plots to shoot her, to grab her and strangle her and stab her or to poison her. They were going to poison the saddle so that when she sat on the saddle, it would go into her clothing and everything. So yes, it was absolutely risky. And people, the negative side of progress is a lot of criticism of her surfaced in the context of her sexuality. So we hear the queen is going on progress. Oh, well, she's pregnant by Robert Dudley, so she's going to have the baby while she's traveling and no one will know about it. So that's what she's doing. She's being sexually promiscuous. And that's from more than one source. So what you're suggesting about her independence and liberty and freedom of movement was conveying with it at the same time these 
challenges to some of the gendered roles of what women should be doing. And here she was an unmarried queen and she's traveling with all these men. And here's Robert Dudley, her master of the horse, who was closest by her and always with her on the, you know, so you can see how the conspiracy theories quickly emerge there. So it seems from what you're saying that threats, both physical and in terms of her reputation, were increased or her exposure to them was increased by being on progress, which indicates that perhaps her progress could run the risk of highlighting the limits of Elizabeth's power. I see the limits of her power expressed through where she did not go. She does not go up into the north. And it's not just because of Mary, Queen of Scots. The landscape is more rugged, more isolated from the heartbeat of London. It is more heavily Catholic, of course. That's a duality because she does have many loyal Catholics in her government, and she does stay with a number of them. So it's not that being Catholic was a barrier to access to the Queen. But I guess I see her making those choices of where not to go because of concerns for her safety. And you've mentioned that plague could often be the provocation to a progress. But do we see progresses threatened by things outside of humans, you know, like disease, like political events or events overseas? Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, plague is the most ubiquitous one. She was pretty much every year having to swap out destinations because there was an outbreak of plague. So that was very common. There, I think it was in Warwick, she was supposed to enter on a particular road and it had been just pouring down rain and so it was muddy and washed out and she had to come in the other side of town and the welcoming committee was at the wrong place and they had to dash, you know. So the weather did have a big impact in that kind of mundane quotidian way of, okay, you can't go there right now. It was rare that she ever moved on a progress in the winter. It was just something that happened in the summer months. The exception to that being that in 1582, when she is escorting the Duke of Alençon from London to Dover as he heads back to France, and that was in February. But yeah, she's not going to travel in the bad weather months. We've talked about her purpose in traveling, but can we talk about the purpose for those receiving her. You mentioned that she didn't go to the north. Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, is someone who wants her to come and stay. Sir Christopher Hatton, Sir Thomas Gresham, these are people who are actively soliciting visits from the Queen. Why would they want one, <laughs> despite the fact it's going to cost them so much money? <laughs> well, and it's not just the elites who want her. The towns, the universities, the civic communities, they want her for access to power and the ability to form relationships that will lead to successful petitions. But her courtiers are going to use a progress visit as a way of claiming their status, thanking her for making that status possible. It's just a kind of obvious desire to be as close to the center of their world as possible because she has so much control over rewards and resources. The towns are especially interested in hosting her because they have civic problems that they want royal help in solving. 
So when she comes in the center of town as they're doing the welcome ceremonies and the mayor exchanges the mace with her and she is hearing from the town recorder about the history and how her royal predecessors had come and the wonderful things that they had done. And now here she is. And gee, we really hope that you will help us as the citizens of Rye say, our harbor is silting up. We need royal funds to help dredge the harbor. The towns of Stafford and Worcester are suffering terribly from the cloth decline, the woolen decline in the 1570s. And she comes there and they have speeches petitioning her to order the Assize courts to return to their town because when the courts left, it took business, it took revenue, food, lodging, and all of that. And they are in economic decline and they need royal help. So the towns especially are very assiduous in either soliciting her to come or using their ties at court to encourage her to come there. And when she does come, they have their laundry list of items ready to present. We've talked about threats and we've talked about changing the locks and security. I was just wondering, when she was on progress, was it possible for anyone to intercept and petition the Queen? Or were all her meetings highly orchestrated? Mm. It was possible. It was lucky. We have a lot of ambassadorial reports saying, we've got urgent business, but the Queen is on progress, and we don't exactly know where she is, and we want to find her. And sometimes they luck in, they do find out. There's some other examples of members of the gentry who are looking to present a petition, and they hear through their network, their grapevine, that she is coming that way. So they are writing to say, we hope to find the Queen and have contact with her. I think if you were a member of the gentry, you would be able to get past the gatekeepers into court. Security at that level was very hard to maintain, even though the porters would have lists of people who were allowed access to court, physical access to court. But at the same time, you've got the perennial tutor concern about vagrants and masterless men and the riffraff. And those people might look very similar to your own cooks and carters. And, you know, so the ability to permeate the closed court was pretty regular and significant. They had the goal of maintaining limited access or controlled access to the queen, but it was hard to achieve. And that had good and bad impacts on her social life. You mentioned that in the 1590s, she's continuing for a while, but in her closing years, she's often portrayed as being a decaying queen whose power is increasingly unstable. If we think about her progresses, do we get from them a different read on the 1590s or does it reflect this decline of power? I think it reflects the challenges of the 1590s, some of which are hers as a person also. Not only the inflation, but the bad weather, the food prices, their food riots, the peak of her popularity, the kind of natural reaction to the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588. That's kind of a signal. And then the deaths of Hatton and Dudley and Walsingham in the early 1590s 
really, I think, are significant. Although Burley and Robert Cecil continue, and that's those are important relationships. She does see them. But she is in her late 50s, early 60s, mid-60s, and maybe some of that bouncing around in the carriage is starting to weigh on her. I don't want to paint a picture of her as decrepit and on her deathbed in the 1590s, but at the same time, the last six years of her life, she was not traveling in the way that she had. So when she was 59, 61, 62, she was off on those last long progresses, but she dies at 69. And I think the last four or five years had some aches and pains that as she was working on her transition to a successor, maybe meant that going on progress wasn't as crucial as it used to be. So finally then, I'd like to ask what you think we can learn of Elizabeth's character by thinking about her progresses. You've talked about her desire to see all. There's a sense of strategy. There's a sense of resilience. Possibly there's a sense of empathy for her people. What do you think it tells us about her? I think it tells us how brave and cautious she was at the same time. I think it tells us how iron-willed and flexible she was at the same time. I think it highlights the ambiguity about her that is so ingrained in a young woman who survived all that she did before becoming queen. So her lodestar of popularity, that is the key for her throughout her life. And it affected so many decisions that she made or so many refusals to make a decision. And the progresses are an embodiment of her love of her people. It's a little cheesy to say it that way, but her recognition that her popularity is what is the strongest element next to God's divine sanction of her monarchy that she has. And these progresses are an important way to maintain those strengths and feed them. And if she stopped traveling and stopped caring about the interactions, the views of her populace, she would put herself and her monarchy at risk. So I think they're really an embodiment of her personality and her strengths and weaknesses. Well, thank you so much for a very entertaining and informative look at Elizabeth I's progresses. It's been really, really fun and really interesting. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. I had such a good time talking with you. Thank you. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, my researcher, Esther Arnott, and Joseph Knight, who edited this episode. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the tutors.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50-80% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.